Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Tom Williams here. We have an opportunity to reach back into the archives, bring you a previously broadcast program today, and I chose a conversation about wilderness. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty comfortable in civilization, but I love reading about wilderness and related issues, experiences in the wild. Fire is my imagination. We have such conversation for you today. This is a conversation about deer and elk and grizzly bears and the love of the wild. Here is an episode of Access Utah, first broadcast in September of 2017. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. At 20 years old, Pete Fromm heard of a job babysitting salmon eggs. Seven winter months alone in a tent in the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness. Leaping at this chance to be a mountain man with no experience in the wilds, he left the world. Thirteen years later, he published his beloved memoir of that winter, Indian Creek Chronicles, which is an into the wild with a twist in which he lives. Twenty-five years later, he was asked to return to the wilderness to babysit more fish eggs, but no longer a footloose 20-year-old. At 45, he was the father of two young sons. He left again, alone, straight into the heart of Montana's Barb Marshall Wilderness, walking a 10-mile loop to his fish eggs through deer and elk and the highest density of grizzly bears in the lower 48 states. The new book is The Names of the Stars, A Life in the Wilds. And uh, Pete Fromm is a five-time winner of the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Award. Uh, he is, uh, there's a film been made of one of his books, released in uh, 2013, As Cool As I Am. He's also the author of four story collections, has published more than 200 stories in magazines. He's on the faculty of Oregon's Pacific University's low-residency MFA program. He lives in uh, Missoula, Montana, and uh, he is the winner of uh, this year's uh, Evans Handcart Prize uh, from the USU Mountain West Center for Regional Studies. We welcome in for the hour today, Pete Fromm. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, so I understand, uh, I think... Uh, Listening to some other interviews, reading some things, you have a French editor, do you? Right. Uh, I've got a. He's uh, publishing almost all of my books, translating them into French. Um, the American West is very big in France. And he said something. Apparently, according to you, said something interesting. He he uh, he said he pushed you to do more memoir and and uh, to expand uh, this book. Um, and he asked a question. You got a beautiful wife. You got two uh, sons. Why are you heading out into the wilderness? Right. Yes. He, he was uh, frantic for this book for a number of years. I, I thought I. Uh, it, it took years to write, and he kept asking to see it, and I just kept telling him, "Nope, it's not ready." And when I finally showed him a draft, I thought it was close. That's exactly, he said, you. And I thought that was an odd thing to say since I was the only character in the book. And he said, oh, yes, yes, we, we see all the things, your little walks and you're eating your oatmeal. But we know that you have this beautiful wife and these wonderful children. And the French need to know how it is you have become so screwed up that you leave them <laughs> to go into the wilderness. <laughs> So that's, I don't know if that's the general French perception, at least that's his perception, right? Uh, <laughs> right. He was uh, pushing me to step out from behind the screen I had built for myself and, and reveal um, what it is that in, in France such a thing um, would be impossible because, as I hear over and over again over there, it, they have no wilderness, mm -hmm. uh, so the, the the place is almost inconceivable to them. The, the sense of scale, and then that someone would choose to go live with out there alone um, in a place full of bears uh, is romantic to them, but also uh, really beggars their imagination. So that uh, that does bring up the question. You you, you treat this. I'm, you, I'm sure you've thought about this. Why? And you talk about uh, as, uh, looking back as a boy. You you uh, you use the phrase "going feral." So why why is it for you that you that you you know leave your wife and sons and and had I, I can understand it, and we'll talk about this as as a young man. 
but but uh, as a middle-aged man with uh, with family, what's this call of the wild? Well, that that's what I tried to figure out for years uh, working on the book. Um, at first, I, I going back in at forty-five as a stay-at-home dad for the, my two sons. Um, I, I thought, well, the only reason could have been that I, I was infected with some sort of wilderness virus while I was at Indian Creek. Um, and then I thought, well, well, why did I go to Indian Creek? Something must have happened before that um, that made me want to do this. And so the book explores that. And each time I thought I had it, an answer, I, I would I would write that and think, yeah, that's it. And then as I continued to write along, I think, well, wait a minute. Even before that, there was something. And what I came to realize is if you try to pick one thread through your life that led to where you are, you're, you're pretty much left with a big snarl of thread. Um, and you don't really have an answer. You just have a lot more clues. Hmm. I guess it's an illustration that all of our lives are made up of these accidents, quote-unquote, or, or, or threads. You, you try to make plans, but... Um... That's not what happens. Right. And accident is is probably the best word uh, for me. Uh, Just, you know, some incredibly lucky strokes. Uh, When I was 12, my parents had the courage to load six children into a station wagon and uh, drive them out west. We lived, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And when we got to the Tetons, I, I I just took a look at those mountains and thought, <laughs> wow, uh, that's incredible. This this has a lot more to offer than looking out at Lake Michigan. Um, but then I went home to Lake Michigan and didn't really think about it again until applying for colleges. I realized I, I, did, I wanted to go west, um, and that was really my only a chance vacation as a kid led me to the University of Montana, um, in the wildlife biology program, which to me sounded like just playing outside, um, which I thought would be cool. Um, and then a fluke, a person I met, um, knew someone who took the job to take care of salmon eggs and spend seven months alone in the winter, but they chickened out at the last second. And this girl told me, I know this job that you might like, um, I called the Idaho Fishing Game and told them I'd do it. Hmm. They were so happy to have someone drop in on them at the last second that they said, you're hired. And this despite uh, the fact that you um, didn't know how to do some key things, you know, run a chainsaw, (laughs) et cetera. Yeah, I I didn't know how to do any key things. Um, When they picked me up and brought me back into the woods, they... uh, they discovered then I didn't know how to run a manual transmission, um, and I was supposed to use their pickup to cut my winter's worth of firewood um, to heat the wall tent that they left me with. Um, and then they discovered I didn't know how to run a chainsaw. I'd never had seen one. But by that time, they were all the eggs were planted in the salmon channel, and they needed somebody to chop ice off of them all winter and. I don't think you could do it today, that the liability would be so high. They just said, well, good luck. Um, <laughs> see you in the spring. <laughs> so they, they sent this, this young kid out in a, in a tent, right, in the middle of winter. I guess you're, you're going to stay there right. over, over wintertime. Um, so right. tell, me, tell me a bit about that. You chronicled this in Indian Creek Chronicles. Seven months in, in the middle of the wilderness, your job is to tend these salmon eggs. Um, what, to keep them from freezing? Is that your main job? Um, well, the, the cha- they, they cut a channel between Indian Creek, diverted water off of Indian Creek, and then returned it to the Selway River. And they filled the channel with river rock and then leaked two and a half million salmon eggs into the rocks. And, and they had a head gate at the channel that they can control the flow, and water ran across the eggs all winter as the fish, as the eggs hatched. And um, at 
the end of the channel was a waterfall. And over the winter, the channel froze over and then got buried in six feet of snow. So that insulated it so water would run underneath the snow and keep the eggs alive. And at the end of the channel was a little waterfall. And every night, the winter was so cold, the waterfall would freeze solid. And that would stop the water in the channel, which would then freeze because it wasn't moving anymore. So every morning I just woke up and walked over to the channel and chopped the ice off the waterfall so the water would continue to move over the eggs, providing them with oxygen. And um, so my job was about five minutes worth of work a day, um, which left 23 hours and 55 minutes of free time um, with nothing much to do. Did, did the experience match up with what, you, with what you thought it was going to be? I understand you were in the thrall of some mountain man books, and so maybe one reason you took this job. Yeah, the only reason, really. Uh, I had a roommate in college who read mountain man stories voraciously, and he had us both moaning about being born too late to be Hugh Glass and get eaten by a grizzly bear or... <laughs> John Coulter, stripped naked and given a head start to run from the Blackfeet. Uh, so it sounded, those stories made the whole thing sound so romantic. Uh, just living on your own, being your own person and wild and free, all that kind of stuff. So when I heard about the job, I thought, well, I'll find out about this. I'll see if that's all romance or if it's really, really the way it is. Um, and so I spent seven months discovering that it's it's both. Um, it's incredibly difficult at times, uh, you know, 40 below nights, uh, everything freezing solid, very difficult to, to, you know, you have to chop a hole through the ice in the channel to get a drink. Um, but at the same time, you, you hike up top and... Uh, get out of the tight little valley and into the sun and as far as you can see in um, the wilderness, the, the only footstep that's uh, not an animal is yours. Mm. And that's a pretty cool feeling. Mm. Are there dangers out there? And we'll get into that uh, talking about grizzly bears when we get into talking about the current book, Names of the Stars. There's a there's a photo in the in the Names of the Stars, which is it's kind of chilling to me. Uh, it's your footstep, your footprint, uh, overlaid by a grizzly footprint. Yes. Um, at Indian Creek, fortunately, most of that time I was back there, the bears were all in hibernation. Um, but it, in the second job, uh, in the Bob Marshall, it was May, and the bears were just out of hibernation um, following the elk calves, the elk around. Uh, waiting for them to calve so they could prey on the calves. And uh, there were no people back into the wilderness then. It was too early in the season. So the bears were just walking the same trails that I did to check on the fish eggs. So frequently I would drop down to the river, check the eggs, come back to the trail, and see that grizzlies had been walking along the trail right behind me. Um, several times I was warned by bears that I couldn't see because the vegetation was so thick, but I'd get kind of huffed at. Um, they kind of woof at you to say, you're too close. Uh, so yes, there, there are dangers. At Indian Creek, there were mountain lions out all winter. Um, but these aren't monstrous creatures that they... Every bear that I encountered either ran from me or let me know it was there. It was time for me to be someplace else. So I guess dangers, but but manageable. Maybe maybe we watch too many movies that uh, you know, or <laughs> bears are eating us. Right. I mean, it's real danger, right. but but manageable. It sounds like at least where yeah, you were manageable with luck. I mean, there's always the chance, um, particularly with grizzlies. Of, Surprising them and um, having them charge in just a defensive reaction. The uh, when I came out, 
I, I talked to my wife and, and was telling her some of the sort of close encounters that I'd had, and she, she wasn't thrilled to hear about it. And I said, well, I think they, you know, I walked the same trail, the same route every day for 30 days in a row. And I think they just got to know me. They, they, were, they were aware of my presence and they just let me go by and they went along their business. And she said, yeah, either that or it was like the Lazy Susan at a Chinese restaurant where you put all the food and you spin it around and decide to make a selection. <laughs> maybe they just one day we're going to say, oh, what the hell, we'll try it. <laughs> Yeah, so, so maybe, maybe some luck involved as well. Uh, so, what, oh, I think so. Yeah. Uh, you describe the the beginning of your book. Um, what you what you take with you? You, uh, you have bear spray, right? What 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 else do you um, would you take with you on your on your uh, that that ten mile hike every every day? Uh, well, I was a park ranger in the Tetons for many years, and I ran the. Snake River. I was a river ranger, so I just ran the river every day. But it was considered a law enforcement job, so I had to have a handgun for that, and I had a 357 Magnum, and which is pretty much considered way too small to, for, as a grizzly deterrent. Um, but it was the only gun I had, so I brought that, carried it on one hip, and I bear spray on the other hip. Um, with no plans of ever using the gun and lots of hopes of never having to use the bear spray. Um, other than that, I carried my water and my lunch and um, binoculars and a notepad. Um, no no uh, communication. The, the river, uh, I was on the North Fork of the Sun River and the canyon is too walled in by mountains and too far away from any sort of cell towers. So I, I was on my own. Oh, do, is bear spray effective? You ever had to use it? I have never had to use it, but there are many, many stories of it being uh, very effective. More more effective, actually, than firearms. Um, the bears use their noses for everything and to get a blast of this fiery spray uh, really tends to send them in the other direction in a hurry. You write in the book about, um, you, you know, you're making noise, right? You want to, you want the bears uh, particularly to know you're, to know you're coming. What, what would you do? How would you let them know? Right. That's, that's the, the number one way to survive in bear country is not to surprise them. Uh, but uh, after a month, or considering you have a month out there, it's very difficult to walk through the wilderness day after day shouting, hey, bear, here I come, or clapping your hands or anything. So I, I tried to figure out some way that would be a little more manageable to be doing for five or six hours a day. So I, I thought of singing and the only thing I could, only songs I could remember were the songs that I sang to my boys every night um, at bedtime, and they were they were a, a, it was a fairly eclectic mix of the only songs that I could think of at the time. Take me out to the ball game, um, a, a bunch of songs my father had had around the house when we were kids: Burl Ives, uh, Big Rock Candy Mountain. Uh, the national anthem, uh, silly children's songs. So it was not impossible to feel foolish. Uh, fortunately, I was completely alone, and I have a singing voice that is possible to scare grizzlies with. <laughs> That's quite the picture. Um, <laughs> singing to the bears, essentially. Yeah. Um, right. Let's uh, let's take a break. We'll come back and talk more about this uh, these extraordinary. Um, adventures to Pete Fromm has had in, in his life. Uh, the book is The Names of the Stars, A Life in the Wilds. And uh, Pete Fromm is winner of the latest uh, Evans Handcart uh, Prize uh, administered by the uh, USU Mountain West Center for Regional Studies.
More with Pete Fromm following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cash Arts presenting New York Jazz Ensemble, The Hot Sardines, Brassy Horn Arrangements, Piano Melodies, and Vocals Reminiscent of New York Speakeasies, Parisian Cabarets, and New Orleans Jazz Halls. Wednesday, May 2nd at 7.30 p.m. Ticket information at cashearts.org. This is the Management Minute with Professor Scott Hammond. I recently spoke with a graduate who was at the edge of losing his first job six months into his career. He complained that the big ideas he was contributing were unappreciated. What did they hire you to do, I asked. Data analytics, he said. Who's doing your job while you're doing this other job, I asked. Well, it was awkward, but he learned just in time that most first jobs are about detailed work. Every organization needs people who will do the mundane and routine work. To have a successful career, you need to master the details before you can earn the right to contribute big ideas. The Management Minute is made possible by the USU John M. Huntsman School of Business one-year MBA, full-time on-campus in Logan, and professional MBA available statewide. Details at huntsman.usu.edu MBA. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah, which first broadcast in September of 2017. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Pete Fromm. He is the award-winning author previously of the Indian Creek Chronicles. Other books as well. The latest book, The Names of the Stars, A Life in the Wilds. It's a memoir, and it's winner of the 2017 Evans Handcart Prize. Uh, Handcart Award, I should uh, call it. So, uh, Pete Fromm, understand it um, from The Names of the Stars. I wonder if you could tell us about this. It's kind of a seminal event, looking back at least. Uh, your brother and father launched a multi-stage hobby rocket. Right. Uh, we used to go out to an abandoned uh, Air Force base in southwestern Wisconsin, southeastern Wisconsin, and shoot these rockets up into the air. Uh, it was 10 or 12 uh and the rocket stuff didn't fascinate me much. My father was an engineer. Uh, my twin brother is now an engineer, and they couldn't get enough of that kind of stuff. But <clears throat> after the rocket launched, uh, we would have to chase it down, often for a mile or two as it drifted in the wind from its parachute. And that was what really caught me up. Uh, my father would figure out which direction the rocket was drifting and point, and my two brothers and I would tear through this scrambled wasteland of <clears throat> sumac and willow and weeds and uh, spring runoff ponds. So we would splash through this mess just running like crazy. Uh, and uh, once my, we reached the edge of a pond that looked more like a lake, and we looked back to my father, you know, what do we do now? And he hesitated and then just waved us forward through the middle of the pond. And it was just such a, a shattering of all the rules that I'd ever been taught. You, you, know, you don't run through ponds in your clothes. You, you don't, you're never able to be away from all rules. Uh, just charge forward. And we, we, we called that part of the game swamp crawling. And, and to me, it was the, the major point of firing a rocket, this being cut loose to run wild. And that was, if I thought of that as walking through these giant rain-swept open flats in the Bob Marshall and thought, maybe this is, maybe that chasing those rockets was what got me started this way. And as I, when I was working on the book and, and thought of that, I thought, yes, I've got it. This is really the starting point of what's happened to the rest of my life. Um, and then as I worked farther, I thought, well, there might have been something before even that. It kept working that way. You apparently, uh, you, you <laughs> liked being off by yourself. Even family outings, they'd, they'd sort of just, I, I guess, be resigned to the fact that we're, you know, we're going to send uh, Pete out. We'll find him later. Yeah, I, I, 
exactly. I, I think I may have been such a pleasant uh, companion on these trips that they were quite happy to let me loose on my own. Um, but I, 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 I don't know the reason. I, I was never um, drawn to group activities. My parents loved to take guided nature hikes with, with the rangers. And to me, I just felt like, you know, one of the sheep being led around. And I think it might have, it made me feel like an amateur or like a tourist. And I, I didn't, even as a kid, I didn't like that feeling. I, I wanted to go on my own. And on a trip to Rocky Mountain National Park, I was, I was probably so miserable to be around when I asked, could I just stay here and uh, try to fish in this creek? by myself while well, you guys go on your all-day trip. My parents just stopped the car and let me go. Um, and that that was something that got repeated more and more often as we went out. I wonder, um, and you've explored where this impulse comes uh, in, in your life, you know, going feral, uh, wanting to get out in, in, into the wild, that's a sort of taste for the wild. And uh, I think in the West here, anyway, we even if we don't do that, we sort of understand it. We we uh, because we have it all around us. We talked about France and then the fact they don't have as as wild places. You think that's innate in all of us, or do you? And it has, does it have to be activated by? You have to be exposed to it, I guess, to for that to be triggered. I, I think yeah, I'm sure there are people who who. Just grew up that way. Um, it was innate, um, but I, I think uh, to for most of us, there probably is a trigger of some sort. Um, my sons started rafting as infants, um, as about a three-year-old. My, my older boy, you know, he didn't. He wasn't content sitting in a raft. He, he wanted to roll. Um, and he, he learned very young to do that. And, um, well, it, it's, uh, <laughs> there's a, there's a section, a small section I could read, uh, when I was first offered the job to go back into the woods again, when I, when I was a father and it might show a little bit about how one of my sons was, was completely caught in the same track that I was. Yes, that'd be great. Okay, well, I was just walking my boys home from school, and uh, a fishing game truck pulled around the corner, and a fisheries biologist I knew in it charged across the street at us, and he said, I think I might have a job for you if you're interested. So I asked him about it, and he said, it, "It's we just came from a meeting about trying to introduce grayling into the North Fork of the Sun River in the Bob Marshall and it just requires somebody to camp out with the fish eggs for a month. And, um, and I'll start to read. The boys, shy at the best of times, clustered beside me, not missing a word. What about these two, I asked. If I was thinking at all, it was to hope they'd give us a wall tent, set up along some deserted forest service road, a little creek, the boys splashing in the beaver ponds, making boats to throw into the rapids, bomb with rocks as they shuddered downstream, a little fishing, bows and arrows, chopping wood, building fires, all this in the first second or less. They could come, I asked. I don't know why they couldn't, the fisheries biologist said. I asked him to find out what he could, let me know the details, and he nodded, raising an eyebrow as if he'd only been kidding about giving me another job in the mountains. He wheeled across the street to his driveway, gone, but Nolan clamped onto my hand, just beginning. Can we? We'll have to find out more, I told him. But can we? He didn't even know if they're actually going to do it, I said, or when, or where. But if they do, can we? We'll see. Even if they don't do it, can we still go camping for a month? Let's wait and see what he finds out. But can we camp for a month, no matter what, during school? They'd been to the Selway, Indian Creek, more than once. For years, I'd had to tell them bedtime stories based on my winter there. 
the bobcat riding a deer over the cliff, the mountain lion leaping down a canyon. We'll think about it, I said. He gave me a look. We'll think about it. Worse than even, we'll see. Aiden picked up a stick, wheeled left, right, testing its sword qualities. But Nolan plugged along beside me. Can we make moccasins if we go? Like the ones you made at Indian Creek? The ones that go up to the knee? We can make those even if we don't go. It'd be better if we made them out there. Out there. Wherever that was. Already planning with the same meticulous care as his father. We could make all our clothes out of deer skins, he said. The fall before, we'd spent a staggering amount of time brain canning and antelope hide, ending up with enough soft suede leather for a decent rag. We hadn't tackled deer hide yet, had no ready supply for deer skins, but, you know, details. We can chip, chip flint for arrow points, kill a bird for the fletching. We'll start all our fires with flint and steel. We went on and on, all afternoon, all evening. Last thing that night, in bed, story read, lights off. I leaned over for the hug and the kiss, and he said, can we? So he had the bug pretty bad. Um, and so this is a different experience, because in the end, um, I guess the, they didn't let you take your kids. Right. Out there. Yes. Um, my wife, uh, she said they're snack side. You can't take them in with the grizzlies. <laughs> yeah. she, she was happy um, enough to let me go for some reason. <laughs> uh, but the Forest Service in the end said they, they, the Forest Service was going to loan a backcountry cabin to the fishing game for me to stay in. And uh, at last, the, just before we were about to leave, they said, we're not going to give you the cabin if he's taking young boys. Sons were six and nine years old. And um, they just said, no, we're not, we don't, won't allow that. Mm-hmm. And so it was, I, I really wanted to go to show it to them. And I considered not going, but my wife said, no, you, you can't do that. This is who you are. This is what you've always done. Um, you you need to go for yourself, um, even if the boys can't go, which which was a, a hard thing for me to do, to, to have to tell my son Nolan that, yeah, you, I'm going, but you can't. Uh, and then once I was out there, <clears throat> the fishing game thought that they'd put the eggs within a mile of the cabin, but it turned out it was five miles. So a 10-mile hike every day would have been tough. Mm-hmm. And then the grizzly situation was much more intense than I planned. So both my wife and the Forest Service were correct, which is difficult for me to admit. Mm-hmm. But I was glad that they had insisted. So this is a different, um, I don't know, a different experience, different impulses, different motivations, some similar, I suppose. You you know, you now have a wife and kids. You're not a mountain man. Um Right, right. Yeah, um, you got your son's Batman pillow, for example. <laughs> yes, my, my six-year-old gave me his Batman pillow. He, he was a strong believer in the protective powers of superheroes. Um, so that was to keep me safe. And the I, I even as I was horse-packed into the wilderness, uh, I... I missed them a lot, but I also felt that I had really let them down. Um, at the same time, the first time we got off the horses to put the eggs into the creek, um, set up the incubators, when I stepped off the horse and just smelled the, the sun. Sounds sounds like uh, you... so great. Okay, you so glad to be back. You, you're cutting in and out there a little bit, uh... There we go. That that sounds better. That sounds better. Okay. We, say the last couple sentences. We missed that. Okay. Uh, even though I, I I felt as if I was letting my sons down, and riding in on the pack train was uh, bittersweet at best. I once I got off and into the forest, down to the creek where we were putting in the incubators and the fish eggs. It just the smell of the needles in the sun and the the, the 
the smell of the mud by the creek and the sound of the creek running over the rocks. I, it, I just, it felt so great to be back out there. And I, I guess you probably need both, right? Civilization and wild. You, you tend to bounce back and forth between the two. Right. Yes. And, um, and I, I'm, I'm not a hermit. I'm, I'm not, I, I, Got nothing against civilization most of the time, uh, but the for me the wilderness is a, is a real recharge place, and showing it to my sons and has been uh, a big part of raising them and, and watching them uh, start to get the same sense for it that I have. If you just joined us, we're talking with Pete Fromm. Uh, the latest book is The Names of the Stars, A Life in the Wilds. Uh, you can join this conversation by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And Steve has done that. Steve says, when I was in Idaho last month for the solar eclipse, my host took me to visit a salmon hatchery connected to the aptly named Salmon River near the town of Stanley. Does your guest know of it? Yes, I've, familiar with I've that actually one? been there. Um, I, I've been down to Stanley, uh, actually steelhead fishing, and, and know that hatchery. Uh, it's probably, it's quite a ways from the Selway and Indian Creek, uh, 100 miles or more, but it's in a gorgeous spot. And as Steve goes on, I was there at the height of the summer, of course, but I would imagine that somebody overwintering there would enjoy at least a modicum of creature comforts. It has electric power, a paved road in and out, likely passable with a snowmobile, even if it's not plowed, and of course the nearby settlement of Stanley. Not at all in the deep wilderness experience your guest lived. Is this a sign of the times, or are different hatcheries just different, he asks. Yes, they're just different. Um, I wasn't actually at a hatchery. The eggs that they were uh, planted into this channel were taken from salmon at the various dams going upriver um, on the Columbia. And the, the channel, they call it a salmon rearing channel, was just cut into this spot in the wilderness. So it was not a hatchery. There, there's no uh, power within 60 miles of me. Uh, the Ass was snowed over in November, and there was no traffic in or out. Uh, the closest plowed road was 40 miles away. The closest person, 60 miles away. So it wasn't a, a official salmon hatchery setup. Mm. Um, and uh, in the latest book, it's it's grayling. Eggs. Right, which which are a, a Arctic species of fish, which moved down with the last ice age and as the ice retreated pockets of arctic grayling were left in montana and michigan um, they went extinct in michigan in the early part of the 19th or 20th century and in montana there's a population in the big hole river uh, which is threatened as the planet gets warmer um, they're, they're kind of hanging on and the fishing game, we're hoping to establish another population of river uh, grayling. And so if, if one river got too warm or, you know, some catastrophe happened, they, they wouldn't lose the entire population. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to um, have you read another passage from the book. Also, talk about your time being a lifeguard at uh, Lake Mead. We'll also ask you if, uh, you know, any experiences in Utah here. Um, the book is The Names of the Stars, A Life in the Wilds. The author is Pete Fromm. He's author of uh, several previous books, including um, Indian Creek Chronicles, a previous uh, stint, uh, Babysitting uh, Fish Eggs. Um, and he's on the faculty of Oregon's Pacific University's uh, low-residency MFA program. He lives in uh, Missoula, Montana. And he is winner of this, this year's Evans Handcart Award uh, for his memoir. More follows this break. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, we dig into the new Trump tax package with one of its architects. So we had 
really kind of like a raging problem that required antibiotics of a tax reform. And with some dissenters. So the core arguments the administration made over and over again were completely false. Tax reform? That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah, which first broadcast in September of 2017. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. And uh, my guest today, Pete Fromm, was asked to go into the wilderness to babysit some fish eggs. Um, this happened, I think, in 2004. Previously, uh, several years earlier, uh, at, as a 20-year-old, he had a job overwintering, babysitting salmon eggs. Both these experiences uh, took place in wilderness. Um, the one we're talking about uh, in the book uh, right now is uh, Montana's Bob Marshall Wilderness, previous experience, Selway Bitterroot Wilderness, and uh, that experience was chronicled in Indian Creek Chronicles. The latest book is The Names of the Stars, A Life in the Wilds. Uh, Pete Fromm, the, the uh, title, The Names of the Stars, I understand that's taken from a song. Right. Uh, uh, English songwriter Billy Bragg, lost his father when he was a young man and he uh, wrote a song about it called tank park salute and the line that i took the title from uh the verse is the opening verse of the song just kiss me good night and say my prayers leave the light on at the top of the stairs tell me the names of the stars up in the sky tree taps on the window pane that feeling smothers me again Daddy is a true that we all have to die. And the, the book wound up being quite a bit uh, about mortality, really, uh, considerations of what you do and, and what risks you take. Uh, my younger son's baseball coach uh, had had a heart attack and, and died on the field um, in front of all the kids. Uh, we did CPR and, and got him going again, but he died a week or two later. And and he was six years old. He was sort of in that phase, trying to you know figure out: Do we have to die? Do you have to die? Um, so then, walking around with grizzly bears, uh, the question came up a little more urgently now and then. Mm. There's a moving passage in the book where you talk about that. You know, your son saying, "Do do do we have to die? Do you have to die, Daddy?" And uh, you end up ruminating, um, yeah, we you know, face your mortality, but not your sons. They they won't don't die. I guess you're referring to that, you know, that hopefully you'll you'll go first. That's one element there. Right. And uh, as a five-year-old, uh, I didn't think he needed to face the fact that he would die as well, so... And as a father's wishes, um, as ridiculous as it is, it's easy to say, you know, yes, uh, but not you. you, you never you, mm-hmm. um, at least as far as I'll ever know. Yeah, yeah. Do you understand at least one of your sons is kind of following in your footsteps? He's, he's out in the wilderness. Uh, do you worry about him? Uh, not more so than I would or than I do when he's outside the wilderness. Um, I, I think chances of an accident are, are far greater on the highways or uh, most any other place than they are in the mountains. He wound up being a, a wilderness ranger in the Selway Bitterroot a few years ago and would be gone for 10 day stints and then be back for four days. and. I never worried about that. I always look forward to hearing his stories. Uh, I've often asked, you know, if your son came to you today and said, I want to spend the winter in the wilderness by myself with no communication, would you let him do it? And the answer is an automatic, of course. You know, how could I not? They've heard all the stories. They've read the books. uh, They've been to these places. Um, But a winter... Without hearing from him uh, for seven months, that, that would it wasn't until I was a parent that I realized what I had done to my parents by calling them nonchalantly and saying, oh, I'm going to spend the winter in the woods, I'll call you in the spring. <laughs> um, 
What, that what, was not a very nice thing to do. <laughs> what did they say? Uh, <laughs> my my father thought, well, if you want to get a job in wildlife biology, maybe this is something you have to do. My mother really didn't agree with that. She thought getting experience as a complete fool probably wouldn't help me get a job. <laughs> um, but they realized that I was 20 and I was living... 1500 miles away there wasn't a lot they could do about it uh i wonder if you have do you have another passage from the book you could read us uh sure uh this is i was so set on bringing the boys into the woods with me uh without really considering where i'd be or even knowing where i would be uh this is a a little reason uh, an excerpt that might show when I started to realize that it was best that they hadn't come with me. I I was walking uh, upstream on a ridge, high ridge above the river, and heading towards a a stretch of trees that I I really began to fear. I called it the Hansel and Gretel stretch because it was an old burn and the trees had regrown a lodgepole pine so thick. They're five or six inches apart, and they're 10 or 12 feet tall. And so the trail wound through them for about half a mile, and I couldn't see a thing inside that trail. Uh, I couldn't see more than four or five feet. Um, Couldn't hear anything because the wind would rustle the trees. And um, it was a place I was worried about bears a lot. And I'll, I'll read a little excerpt. I plod on, getting close to the Hansel and Gretel stretch, the boogeyman bend, where my entire world condenses to the few feet around me. But still out in the open, the hairs on the back of my neck go up, my shoulders jumping in a shiver. It's hard being sure what you hear while walking out in the wild. All the close little noises, the rustle of clothes, the tread of feet against rock and stone, twig and needle, the wind, the water, block out others, but still I stop dead, turning my head this way and that, straining to hear. And there it is again, no mistake, a roar in the wilderness. I turn toward it, facing the river, the canyon. On the steep hill of the other side, in the low scrub of new growth, the few blackened points of the snags, they're not hard to pick out. Maybe 200 yards away, the drop and climb of the river cut, putting them nearly at eye level. A pair of grizzlies, one wrestling with something behind a charred log, the other standing back, moving in, then away. Thirty yards above them, a cow elk paces, watching their every move. The bigger bear, the one behind the log, lifts its head, tugging backward, and the hind leg of an elk calf tilts up, then flops back down. Smaller bear, which seems full-sized itself, inches closer while the big bear's head is down, until, without warning, the big grizzly bursts out, hurtling the log, barreling toward the smaller bear, front legs spread wide, hair bristled out, a massive, terrorized, terrifying rush that steals my breath from across a river. I've heard of men standing still in the face of these charges, waiting for the bear to veer off at the last instant, knowing most are false charges. And I wonder what flows through their veins, or if they simply froze, only later coming up with a theory to explain their failure to move a single muscle. The smaller bear knows what to do, tripping over itself in full-scale retreat. The big bear, really it should be the huge bear and the big bear, doesn't bother giving chase. Instead, Another roar drifts across the river to me, and the big bear stomps once and turns back, climbing across the log it had leapt over before and lowers its head into whatever's left of the calf. The less huge bear circles back in. And above them, the cow calls to her calf, that plaintive, throaty chirp. Neither bear so much as looks in her direction. Yeah, amazing. that And that... (laughs) The passage that really stands out to me is it's a dramatic passage. Um, you you heard of bears 
charging, and most of them are false charges. Keyword being most. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that's the one that does it. Uh, sitting there uh, trying to figure out if this is going to be the one that isn't a false charge. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, uh, quite the experience later out there. It, oh, pardon me. No, go ahead. Uh, later, I, I was on almost my last day in, I was walking down to the river and it was a very windy day, very hard to hear. Uh, and it was out in the open. So I wasn't singing. I, I wasn't trying to make noise. And I was following fresh bear tracks, but I, I almost always was. So I, I figured it was a bear from the night and it was now 10 in the morning. And I turned a corner in the trail, uh, a switchback and skidded on the gravel. And that made quite a bit of noise. But as I turned the corner, I came face to rump with a black bear, uh, a big black bear. And it heard me at the same time I saw it. And it whirled around and stood up uh, to, to see me and smell me better. And, and that we were probably 10 or 12 feet apart. And um, I had my bear spray with me and I had no idea I had bear spray with me. I stood completely frozen, jaw hanging open and uh, <laughs> the bear hung standing up as it spun around to look at me. It hung there for maybe a second and then just continued its spin move, dropped down and ran as fast as it could away from me ran straight into the river, jumped into the river, swam across the river, ran up the other side of the bluff, and I had yet to move a muscle. So I, <laughs> wow. I began to suspect some of those people who had uh, stood still for bear charges really mm. didn't have a lot of thinking going into it. Right, right just um, kind of a, a, a response. <laughs> well, well, we'll have to leave it there. We're, we're out of time, and we'll uh, have to have you read the book to, uh, to learn about uh, being a lifeguard at Lake Mead, many other experiences uh, fascinating read. Pete Fromm, uh, the book is The Names of the Stars, A Life in the Wilds. It's the winner of uh, this year's uh, Evans Handcart Award. And uh, Pete Fromm, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Pleasure's all mine. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. President Trump wants to keep most transgender people out of the U.S. military. Nicholas Talbot wants to serve. My purpose is to put on that uniform and do my job and serve my country. That's what it's all about. It's not about what you look like under that uniform. As his legal challenge to the ban moves through the courts, he preps for boot camp. A transgender recruit this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us today from 3 to 6.30 with Shalane Smith and Edom on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and City Weekly, a local independent news source with event listings, entertainment picks, movie, and restaurant reviews, available weekly on newsstands or online at cityweekly.net. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard and streaming online at upr.org.